Well, now that all the silliness is over, again, thank you. We're going to start chapter uh, 2, verse 9. Now, I think all of you have been here for the beginning of this study, but uh, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. The um, historical context is uh, the Jewish exiles from Judah have come back from uh, Babylon under now the Persian Empire. Uh, a small number came back, actually. The, the vast majority of Jews remain in Persia, and the book of Esther tells us about that, but that's not what we're studying. Nehemiah has been a cupbearer of the king, Artaxerxes, and he is now um, in Jerusalem. He will soon become the governor of Yehud, Y-E-H-U-D, which is on your map on page 8. And you might also want to have that same page just... I'm just going to allude to this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But this is a map of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. And all I want to do is just show you a couple of the things that are mentioned in this chapter. So now Nehemiah is back, and he is um, he is with the Jewish leadership, but also people who are opposed to Jews being in Jerusalem. So pick up in verse 9. Then I came to the governor's of the province of beyond the river. Now, we've talked about that before, but just let me stress it. That is the Persian name of this area, beyond the river. By the way, you ought to know this. What river? No? Euphrates. Euphrates, the Euphrates River. It's on the western side of the Euphrates, which was, of course, the major defining river in eastern Mediterranean. Well, anyway, that's what it was called. We know that even from extra-biblical material, so it's really quite wonderful to know that. And gave them the king's letters, how the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So, I mean, don't miss that. Artaxerxes not only gave him those letters of authorization, but he sent officers of the army and the horsemen. What army? The Persian army. And cavalry, the, the horsemen of the Persian army. Why would he do that? Because he knew it would be dangerous. Say it again? He knew that it would be dangerous. All right, perhaps the potential he had, danger. He had halted the work. Okay, he had halted the work. We read about that. Well, you, we didn't, but I said that last week in Ezra 4. So that, he has letters plus horsemen and, and military officers. What would that indicate to the governors? Validation. Yeah, validation of his credibility. He, this is evidence of the authority he has from the king. These aren't just letters. I mean, he's got military people here. So this is really remarkable. I mean, it really is that Artaxerxes is so committed to Nehemiah that he sends these additional evidences of the authority that he's given to Nehemiah. They're not going to question that. At least they shouldn't. Verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, now let's, we're going to hear about these guys throughout the book. They're going to keep popping up throughout the book. So let's make sure we have a pretty good anchor of who they are. Sanballat the Amorite. By the way, you're maybe not as interested in this as I am, but this is really remarkable. We have a lot of extra-biblical evidence of this guy. There's a lot of testimony. This is a real historical person. We know a fair amount about him. And Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. Where's Samaria in relation to Jerusalem? 
What direction would you go to get to Samaria? North. Go north. And again, if you look on the map that's on page 8, you can see it. Now, you don't mind if I do this, because this, this heightens the importance of this. Who are the Samaritans? They're half-breed Jew and, and Gentile. That's right. Where did they come from? Where did that half-breed categorization come from? When did that occur? I don't necessarily mean a year. If you have a year, it'd be great. But after what event? When the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., they moved a lot of the Jews out of that area and relocated them throughout the Assyrian Empire, and they moved a lot of Assyrians into that area. That was their standard practice. And so the remaining Jews and those Gentiles intermarried, and they became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, once Judah fell to the Babylonians, Samaritans really exercised their authority. And the Samaritans became the probably leading political authority in the eastern Mediterranean. So why would Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, not want Nehemiah to rebuild the wall? Competition. He will probably lose it. Because you're going to see this a little bit. Sanballat had an office on Temple Mount. I mean, he had an office. I'm using terms we would use. But he had a residence on Temple Mount. He did business from Jerusalem. And he had been, he had been exercising his increasing authority. So if Nehemiah is successful, Sanballat is going to lose a lot of influence. The Ammonites, Ammon, Tobiah the Ammonite, the Ammonites are to the east of the Jordan River. So again, you can see it on the map on page 8. They are to the east. You see the Dead Sea? You see that they're on the eastern side. By the way, you ought to know this too, so I'm going to tell you. The Ammonites are the descendants of Ammon, who was one of the children when Lot had sexual intercourse with his daughters. Two of his daughters... One of his daughters gave birth to Moab, became the Moabites, and the other one gave birth to Ammon, who became the Ammonites. And the Moabites and Ammonites were historically and traditionally the enemies of Israel. They hated each other. And so when you see Ammon, the Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, he is another particularly, we think, an important leader on the Ammonites. They don't want the Jews to succeed either. So you're seeing now enemies popping up, and they are going to be joined by a group of others who are going to do everything they can to thwart Nehemiah's project from being successful. So I went to Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking now. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. That's an interesting comment. He's just telling us, okay, I arrived, I go to Jerusalem, and I stay there for three days. Before I do anything, I go there and stay there for three days. Now, his house was there that his family had lived in for generations. We're not sure he goes there, but anyway, there's a lot of suggestions and thoughts and consideration. What is he doing there those three days? Well, he's not surveying anything because that's what he's going to do in the next verse. Because he's a man of prayer, and we're going to see more of that in this coming uh, paragraph. Perhaps thought, reflection, <laughs> prayer. He's trying to organize what strategy now am I going to follow? Because the enemies are popping up. 
So um, Nehemiah is a, a strategic thinker, a strategic planner, and he takes his time in doing anything. Then the next verse tells us he begins to be he begins to move into action. And he surveys the damage. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, presumably a, a donkey. Why wouldn't he tell anybody? Why would he go out at night and survey the damage around the wall? That's, that's reconnaissance. But why doesn't he do it in the day? I mean, the sun's out. You can see a lot more. There aren't floodlights. He doesn't have an LED light that he's using as a huge flashlight, which generates a lot of light power. I have since found out. I bought my first LED this year. I can't believe how strong that thing is. I also couldn't believe how expensive it was compared to the normal things I buy. He didn't want to be seen. There's enemies there. Pardon me? If, if he didn't want to be seen. Well, yes. some of the last people might be telling them what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is done subtly and secretively because he really doesn't want a lot of people to know what he's doing. And so he's really, he's being shrewd, he's being careful. So at night he goes out. Verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate. Now, if you look at your the map, it's as if you want to, but the one on page 8 again that gives you the map you can see the valley gate. He is on the east side, if you're looking at it on the left side, near the very southern part. So he's only going to survey the very southern part of the wall around Jerusalem. Now I'm telling you that just if you're interested, this will help you to see. We can validate this. If you're not interested, just let me read it and just, just pay attention. And he's going to tell us, I can only go around the southern uh, the southern part, and I headed up the valley. There was so much rubble and, and so much destruction, I couldn't go any farther. So he's surveying how severe the damage is. I went to Valley Gate, to the Dragon Spring, that's another name for what would be the Pool of Siloam, to the Dung Gate. It's called the Dung Gate because that's where they threw all their trash. Seriously. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And I went to the fountain gate. Again, if you're just following, he's going around the southern tip to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that could that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley. The valley is the Kidron Valley. You can see that on your map. And inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were with me to do the work. So he's scoping out how severe the damage is, and what does he discover? It is really severe. He can't even get around the east side and go north along that. He can't. It's so much rubble. And by the way, the Kidron Valley is a very deep valley, and it was just filled with all the rubble from the wall that Nebuchadnezzar's army had destroyed. So what, is, what does he realize? We have a really, really significant job to do here. We're not only going to rebuild the wall, we've got to rebuild all the gates. So, 
I love verse 17, 18, and 19. Here you see Nehemiah, the shrewd strategic thinker and strategic planner. Look at, look at what he does here. Then I said to them, now the, the pronoun them is plural, so it would mean, is he speaking to Sanballat, the governor of Samaria? No. Tobiah the Ammonite? No. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders, the heads of the clans, the priests, the nobles. You see the trouble we're in. That's, that's the problem. We're in a lot of trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates are burned. Who burned the gates? Nebuchadnezzar's armies. 586 B.C. they burned it. This is, five, this is 444 B.C. Jerusalem has been in rubble that long. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. We may no longer suffer derision. What does that mean? The NIV says disgrace. We will no longer mm-hmm. be in disgrace. What does that mean? They're kind of helpless and hopeless. Okay. Why are they in disgrace? What's so disgraceful? It's their city. Their city. I mean, it's a very practical, very practical statement of Nehemiah. But why are they as a people in derision? Why are they in disgrace? Why are they ashamed? Pardon me? They're a conquered nation. They're vassals to a mighty power. And their city is in ruins. You see, and this is, this is what Jeremiah, this is what Jeremiah 24 had said. You will be taken into captivity and the nations will mock you. They will hold you in derision. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. The challenge is before us so that we no longer will suffer the disgrace and shame of derision of being a conquered nation. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good. And also the word that the king had spoken to me. So here's the, here's the challenge and the problem. Here's how serious the problem is. Verse 18 is the solution. God's in this, and I have the authority of the king. So the terribly difficult situation they're in. The massive challenge they have to rebuild the, 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 the rubble of everything in Jerusalem. The solution. God and the authority of the king. God has been upon me. His hand has been upon me for good. That's what chapter 1 is all about. In the very beginning of chapter 2. He would have reviewed, I, I'm absolutely positive, he would have reviewed with these clan leaders and nobles and the priests all that had happened to him in Susa, the capital of, of, of the Persian Empire. What Artaxerxes had said to him, the authority Artaxerxes had given to him, the letters that he had given to him. Hand of God is upon me, and God is with me, to the extent that even Artaxerxes has put his stamp of authority in what we're doing. 
So what did the people say in response? Don't look at me, look at the Bible. <laughs> rise up. Rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. Do you think they said, all right, Nehemiah, let us rise up and build. Okay. You think that's how they responded? No, they're excited about this. All of a sudden, they have a leader who has accurately summarized the challenge, but proposed a God-ordained solution. God is in this. Let's get going. I'm telling you, that, that is evidence of a God-centered leader who's motivating his people to do the things God wants them to do, and they're with him. I told you, Swindoll's little classic, Hand Me Another Book, which is uh, his study of this, this, uh, this wonderful book of Nehemiah. That's right. That's right. I mean, the, the need to protect and secure the city is, couldn't be more evident to them. Now Nehemiah has proposed the solution. Let's get doing it. So hand me another brick. We're gone. So that's the next. But boy, do they have a lot in front of them. So they strengthened, the, um, end of verse 18, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. What do, you, what do you think that means? They strengthened their hands for the good work. Did they do exercises? You know, they all do a bunch of calisthenics and strengthen their muscles. Okay. I mean, they are so motivated. They're strengthening. They're, 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 they're looking at all of the things they need to do. They're encouraging one another. They're strengthening one another for the good work. The good work. God's work. So Nehemiah has energized and motivated and directed the people for the task that's before them. This is what God wants us to do. And God, God superintends to this has even led to the king, Artaxerxes, giving me the authority. So, I mean, it's just it's quite wonderful to put all those pieces together. But, verse 19... But when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab, it's the first time we've been introduced to him. We don't know a lot about him, but the Arab, and if you look on your, your map there, the Arabs lived kind of south. They lived south of Jehu, south of Judah. They were nomadic people. And they really are the, the genesis of the modern Arab population of the Middle East today. Yes, that's right. Heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, saying, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? That is exactly what happened in Ezra chapter 4, and that is exactly why Artaxerxes shut down the work in Ezra 4. So they're saying exactly the same thing again. But Nehemiah's response is classic. Now, this would be a valid concern. Are they organizing a rebellion against Artaxerxes? By rebuilding the wall for security, for purposes as a, as a fortress, 
Are they rebelling? And so, I mean, that's, le- that's a legitimate concern. But remember, Nehemiah had the letters and the imperial guard as authority for what he was doing. So Nehemiah confidently responds in verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Who is conspicuously absent from what he said? Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. He doesn't say Artaxerxes. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will rise and build. But you, now there, there's three words I want you to notice there. I'm reading from the ESV translation, so yours might be a little different. But you have no portion, that's the first word. No right, that's the second word. No claim, you could translate that, no memorial in Jerusalem. You have no allocation, no shared entitlement, no memorial right to this city. I'm going to repeat that. When he uses the word portion, right, claim, or memorial, you have no allocation, no shared entitlement, no memorial right to this city. Why do they have the allocation, the entitlement, and memorial right to the city? By the Abrahamic covenant. They have a covenant right to this city. Geshem the Arab does not. Tobiah the Ammonite does not. And Sanballat the Samaritan does not. But they do. So that's a fantastic a fantastic statement of self-understanding, a, self, a fantastic statement of faith and trust, and a, self, and, and a tremendously accurate understanding of the covenant. This is ours by covenant. And I'm walking back through that. So they were conquered and kicked out. Well, remember, in Deuteronomy 28, they're, 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 they're entering the land. Under Joshua, one group stands on Mount Gerizim, the other one stands on Mount Nebo. And they're standing there, and they rehearse the covenant. And part of the Deuteronomy 28 says, If we do not walk in loving obedience with you according to the covenant, Mosaic covenant, you will discipline us, you will curse our land, and you will send us into exile. So he sent them into exile. But then he promises, God, this is God, promises, but I'll bring you back. And in Jeremiah 24, he had said in 70 years going to spend in, in exile. So now they're coming back. The exile, the, the, uh, the, the discipline is over. You're still punning. Your eyes are... Go. I'm still wondering why, as an Abrahamic faith, why the Muslims have such a contention. It does... <laughs> Why the Muslims have a today? You mean why the Muslims? Well, it's even to this day. Well, I mean, they regard Abraham to them as a prophet. He was the first monotheist in history. He was really worshiping, uh, at least the way they put it, he was really worshiping uh, uh, Allah. And their 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 understanding from the Quran is the covenant son is not Isaac. The covenant son is Ishmael. So, I mean, Glenn, because that's the path they take. They had totally reject the idea that the Jews inherit the covenant. They do, according to the Quran. So, 
But, you know, this, this dispute over the land has been going on since the end of the 600s when one of the caliphs marched into J Jerusalem and claimed it for Islam and made it the third holiest city of Islam. And it's not, it will not be settled till Jesus comes back. He's, I mean, the evidence that you just look today, I mean, there's no way they're going to settle that. Um, so I guess the first question was, uh, in the Bible, do we find a place where God gave him land to Ishmael, right? Or not? When when I, when Abraham sent him with his mother, with Hagar, he sent Hagar. Yeah, uh, yeah she got yeah. <clears throat> I I don't remember if there's anything that says that he gave them something, uh, a piece of land or something like that. He doesn't promise them land. He promises Ishmael a large dynasty, a, a large number of people that will be um, uh, prosperous, but will be con. And this, I hate to put it this way, I don't have to put it, be very contentious people, be very difficult, and will be the enemy of Isaac's. So, and that was true at that moment in history between Isaac and Ishmael, and it was it be it is true for the rest of uh, the rest of time, the rest of history. So he doesn't give them specific, he doesn't lay out land with boundaries. The boundaries that God promises to Abraham are in Genesis. Very clear boundaries. And under Solomon's kingdom, they those were the boundaries of Solomon's empire. But since then, there's not been any fulfillment of that land. And then the second question would be, why do they want the Temple Mount as the third holiest place? Who's they? Oh, the uh, Muslims? Yeah. Well, uh, in the Quran, it says that Muhammad traveled to the farthest city. It, Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran. But the farthest city, Al-Aqsa, it's called in Arabic. And they infer, and the, the caliph in the late 600s says, that farthest north city is Jerusalem. And he just stated it's Jerusalem. And that is why what he did then is he built the Dome of the Rock on Temple Mount, because the temple had been destroyed. He built the Dome of the Rock on, and that is a memorial to that site where when Muhammad traveled to the farthest north, he ascended into heaven, met with, as I recall, Jesus, Moses, and Abraham, I think. And they all validated that he is the final prophet of God. And that visit is sealed his role as the prophet of Allah. And that's why it's so sacred. So Mecca is the most sacred, Medina is the second most sacred, and Jerusalem is the third most sacred. And they've claimed that ever since. And it's really interesting because when the caliph built the Dome of the Rock, that Dome of the Rock was uh, uh, about 50 feet higher than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. After Israel reconquered the old city of Jerusalem after the 1967 war, there was a very large synagogue in the old city that was dedicated, of course, to the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh. But the Jordanians blew up that synagogue. So what the Israeli government did is rebuilt that synagogue, and it's 10 feet higher than the Dome of the Rock. You think that's just a coincidence? You know, they're building, why we all of a sudden, wow, we think we got that high. No, that was very intentional. I've seen that. It's a beautiful synagogue. It's new. It's, you know, it's not that old. But it is a monster. It is a very large synagogue, and it is intentionally 10 feet higher than the Dome of the Rock. 
they no longer, that was the Muslims, they were sending a message with the Dome of the Rock being higher than, we are the new religion of Jerusalem. Well, now that the Jews regain control of Jerusalem and the synagogue, we are the new, so, you know, know, we'll see what happens because uh, it's, it's, well, anyway. All right. Now, we are going to study chapter three in five minutes. Okay? Because honestly, man, you don't want to read this. You know, you're going to go to sleep. We're going to have trouble keeping your attention. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what, what is going on in Jerusalem in chapter 3. Chapter 3 gives us, it's, it's always a summary of the rebuilding of the wall. Okay? It's a summary of it. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 tells us about all the difficulty they had rebuilding the wall. But chapter 3 just summarizes rebuilding. And it's a list of the individuals, the builders, the people who did the building, as they re- and the focus is on the ten gates. And if you look again at that map on page 8, if you're interested in that, it's in, and it's recorded for us in a counterclockwise direction. It's counterclockwise. They go, they go around like this. And it, or around like this, excuse me, go around like this, and it, it gives you the account of each one of the key leaders that rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the wall, they rebuilt the wall, and they rebuilt the gate. The wall between the gates, they rebuilt, but the gates. The gates were formidable things to rebuild because they would use these large, thick, uh, 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 old cedar wood from the cedars of Lebanon and built the structure and then put these large gates with bolts and everything. This was no small task. So it was a major task. And, and so when, when Nehemiah talks about this, he's summarizing each one of the leaders who built the gate and the wall between the gates. So each one had responsibility to do that. And all chapter 3 does is it gives us a summary. Who did this? This is the section they rebuilt. This is the gate they rebuilt. Then goes to another section. This is what he built, and so on. So that's what chapter 3 is. Got it? The fastest we ever co- covered a chapter in the Bible in the history of this class. But honestly, I mean, it, it, it's very detailed, and it just gives us a lot of very specific uh, names, but it shows you this is an accurate historical account. These are the real names of the real people who did the work. So when they said, let us rise up and build, this is what they do. In, in number five there, it says, next to them, the t well, are you in uh, verse 5? Oh, okay. Were you going to go through all these? No. Okay, well, so but it says, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Yeah. There was, there was some of the Jewish leadership, the nobility quote, that didn't want to work. And they didn't work. They were the top 1% of the society. That's supposed to be a joke, but nobody got it. But so, I mean, honestly, I, I don't, I, I'm pretty certain, because it would take me for the rest of our hour to read this, and it wouldn't be real edifying for you right now. If you want to study this, it's very exciting to study if you take the map and just work your way through it. But it just, just repeats it over and over again, it repeats exactly the same thing, every section, but it just tells you who the new name is. So, chapter four. What Nehemiah does is gives us a telescope summary of the rebuilding of the wall and the gates, ten gates. 
Then chapter 4, he goes back and says, okay, here's all the opposition. This is how difficult it was for us to do this. Because remember, they did all this in 52 days. That's it. That, is, that is just incredible to rebuild the entire wall structure and all the gates in 52 days. What's the distance around it? Fred, off the top of my head, I, I don't know. In, my, in, the, in the book I wrote on this, I have all that detail laid out, and I forget. I forget. Like 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards around it, roughly? No, it's the whole perimeter, so this, uh, oh my, uh, this would be quite a few hundred yards. Yeah, quite quite a few. It's hundreds of yards. There is a little scale on your yeah. map there. Yeah, if you, you look at the scale, uh, you know, a little box of 200 yards, and just, you can see, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of yards all around. And it would have been, like, how high? Well, typically, the, the wall that they are, I mean, it depends on where it is, Joel, because in some areas, it's almost a natural wall where, where Nehemiah had, had built. But for the most part, it, these are about 10, 12 feet high. About 10, 12 feet high. Chapter 4, the opposition. This is the first, and that's kind of how I, I uh, outlined it in your notes there, but this is the first of a whole series of oppositions to the wall, to their building. And I want to do I want to do a real in-depth analysis of each one of these. So chapter four now, verses one through six. Now Sanballat, remember who he is, governor of Samaria, heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the at the Jews. His authority as governor is being challenged. He has a lot to lose if they're successful. So the first opposition, the first manifestation of opposition is mocking them, making fun of them. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. So what does that mean? He's brought his relatives as well as his friends are all lumped into that term brothers and his army. Where, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn one and burn ones at that? It's a whole bunch of mocking rhetorical questions that are just uh, demeaning to try to help uh, or rather to cause the Jewish people rebuilding to feel defeated, to feel mocked. And then verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, will he break down their stone wall? What does that mean? They're doing a rotten job. They're not doing quality work. Even a fox is going to fall down, it's going to collapse. They're making fun, they're mocking, they're jeering. Verse 4. Verse 4 is Nehemiah's response. Verse 4 is how Nehemiah, the leader. Verse 4 is how Nehemiah, the strategic thinker, strategic planner, the guy who's in charge of all this, 
Everybody's looking to him now. Nehemiah, what do we do? How do we handle this? So verse 4, I love this. You're going to love this word. Is an imprecatory prayer. Isn't that a great word? It's so important you need to know. So I'm going to write it on the board. This is an imprecatory prayer. I know that's a big word. But it's an imprecatory prayer. Asking God to deal with their enemies. Because Nehemiah is going to say, God, they are opposing you. They're not only opposing us. They're not only opposing me. They're opposing you. God, fight for us. The Psalms are filled with imprecatory prayers. Where the psalmist is in a difficult situation, or in some of the Psalms, an enemy has come and sacked the city of Jerusalem, an enemy has come and destroyed something in the north. God, fight for us! Destroy the enemy! Take vengeance on them! Because God, they are opposing you. So an imprecatory prayer is, you're asking God, who is perfectly just to deal with your enemy. So your thought paper is explain what imprecatory means and illustrate it by verse 4, 5, and 6. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Ah, that's not very nice, is it? You're supposed to say no. It doesn't sound very nice, but in mocking what the Jews are doing and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, who are they really mocking? God. Because it is he who gave the instructions to Nehemiah to do what he's doing. Nehemiah is God's representative in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. This is God's city by covenant. He promised this to them. He's giving it back to them, so to speak. And so God, they oppose you. They they are standing against you. So God, you take care of them. Turn back their taunt. What's a taunt? Yeah, yeah, turn it back on their heads and give them to be plundered in a land where they're captives. What you did to us in sending us into captivity, do it to them, Lord. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. God, they're opposing your work. They're opposing you. You take care of them. Do you remember Jesus says this? It's in Jeremiah and Isaiah, and Paul says it in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. So Nehemiah is appealing to that major theme throughout the Bible. When someone is opposing God's work, let God take care of it. Now listen to me. What Nehemiah shows us is that prayer 
is a strategic part of the methodology of solving problems. Uh, yes. Hope I can remember how I said it. <laughs> what, what this shows us is that prayer is a necessary part, necessary methodology in solving problems. That's a very, and Nehemiah just shows this over and over and over. We got a problem, first thing you do, pray about it. Nehemiah is constantly praying. We talked, I think it was last week, we talked a little bit about one of those straight out of prayers. He, he's all of a sudden dealing with Artaxerxes, asking him questions. Artaxerxes asked a question, what does the next verse say? And I prayed to my God. Straight out of prayer. I'm sure it wasn't, Artaxerxes, i got to go into a prayer meeting. I'll be back in about two hours. That prayer took about five seconds. But here he's facing, facing the mocking and taunting and humiliating language of Tobiah and Sanballat. God, they're opposing you. You take care of them. Uh, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availed of much. And it, this seems like uh, this is a situation of that. And, I mean, is that how you're, you're kind of presenting it here, Jim? Well, sure, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and, and he can be angry and sin not. Right? And I think he was pretty upset. Yeah, I mean, he isn't saying, well, this isn't too nice of a situation. I mean, he is, yeah, he is very angry. He's very emotional. But in, in to deal with his anger and his frustration and to make, because I'll tell you, this is, this is a recipe for defeatism among the people. You have the hordes and hordes of people doing all the work, and you have this constant, continual mocking and taunting and making fun of and humiliating that is hard. It's hard to keep your spirit and keep up keep up the work. And so Nehemiah says, we're, we're going to let the Lord take care of that. It's a key methodology in solving problems. Nehemiah teaches us that. Does that answer your question? Or, okay. All right. So verse 6 then. So we built the wall. The wall was joined together to half its heights, for the people had a mind to work. So when he tells us half its height, what's he telling us? The job's not done. We're making progress, but the job's not done. All right, so the first, the first tactic of the opponents of the wall, Sambalat, Tobiath, and so on, is mocking, taunting, humiliating. The second is a conspiracy, verses 7 through 9. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, we had introduced to him earlier, now the larger group, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, Ashdod, and you can look on the map, is an old Philistine city. So probably when he writes Ashdodites, these are the descendants of the Philistines, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to close, they were all very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. All right. So now what you have, you have a coalition. And he's very specific in verse 7. A coalition of people. A coalition of, these are all tribal groups 
that has been historically the enemies of Israel way back during the monarchy period and now. Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the Ashdodites, the old descendants of the Philistines. And so they had a conspiracy. These guys are all these guys don't get along, but they have a common enemy, the Jews. So they form a conspiracy. And they're 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 serious to cause confusion. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 9. We prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against him day and night. Prayer and work. He didn't just pray. Prayed and worked. They're both important. But prayers first. Prayed and then set up a guard. Lord, protect us, and they all went to bed. Lord, protect us. We're going to organize the defense of the city all night, 24-7. <clears throat> he doesn't tell us what happened, but since they continued building, that conspiracy was thwarted. Verse 10, the third strat tactic, discouragement. In Judah, it was said, now remember, Judah is the province that was a part of beyond the river, that Persian province. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, what is Nehemiah telling us? Discouragement starting to set in among the workers. They've experienced the taunts and the humiliating mocking of the enemies. They're aware of that conspiracy against them. Now, they're weeks into the work. There are three sources of the discouragement. Discouragement number one. There's too much rubble. That's pretty self-evident what that means. We're not going to be able to rebuild the wall. This is too big of a project. There's too much work to do. We can't do it. Number two, so it's physically and emotionally exhausted. Discouragement number two is the fear of the enemy. And particularly, the fear that at night they'll come and kill us. Was that real? Yes. We just read about the conspiracy in verses 7 and 8. So a, a tear, terror, and fear. And then discouragement number 3. The Jews who lived near them. These would be people in the province. If you look on the map on, on page 8, Yehu, it's, it's all, Jerusalem is just one little town at that time, capital, but one little town. It's all the other people. So these are the thousands of people all around because their sons, their daughters, their cousins, their nephews are all working on the wall. 
So what are they saying? Keep going. Great. Keep going. Keep going. Good job. That's not what they're saying. What are they saying? Come back. We got pizza at home. And the football game's on. It's, it's time to come home. This ain't going to work. So you have the friends and family members pleading with them. You can't do this. Come home. And I'm telling you, you put those three together. They're physically and emotionally exhausted. They're afraid of the enemy. And the people that should be encouraging them, should be building them up, are saying, give it up. Come home. Was this the origin of the drive-by media? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just leave that lying on the table. and. <laughs> I mean, I, I love this because, they, now granted, they are doing something sacred to what the Lord wants them to do, but every one of you has been in a situation like that where you're physically and emotionally exhausted, you're afraid, and lots of people are saying, give it up. It isn't worth it. Throw in the towel. But isn't that typical of the Jewish rebellion, Israel's rebellion, throughout Forty years in the desert, they rebelled and carved against Moses. And I'm sure. sure. That's just sure. That's what Jews do. Yeah. Well, Fred, I it, it it to me this is pretty pretty stereotypical, common of all humans in a way. You that's why leaders leaders need to deal with those three things. Your people are getting physically, emotionally exhausted. What are you going to do about that? They are really afraid, whatever the nature of the fear is. In this case, it's the enemies that we've seen their names. And the third one is you've got lots of people saying, this isn't worth it. Throw in the towel. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. And that is true of the wilderness wanderings, and that's absolutely true. So, I mean, what I'm saying is this is real stuff. This is real-world stuff. So what, what does Nehemiah do? Here's Nehemiah's solution. Here's Nehemiah's strategy. Let's try to get this done before we break for seven or eight weeks. No, it's going to seem that way, but just a couple of weeks. See what he does here. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So his strategy is twofold. It sets up a regular, dependable, well-thought-through strategy of defense. And secondly, remember who God is. So again, it's the prayer and the theology and the dependence on God, but the hard work. So he sets up regular 24-7 guards, and he tells us exactly where he does it. And he organizes it by the clans. Remember the clans? Each tribe has certain clans. And the clans, and he organizes it. And he says, now listen, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. Faith always conquers fear. And that's not just a platitude. That's good theology. 
Faith always conquers fear. Now, that is a very easy thing for me to say. In a nice, comfortable room on a rather delightful winter day. At least I think it's a delightful winter day. You may not agree. But it's living it. It isn't it? Because it is absolutely true. Faith conquers fear. But when you and I are faced with doing life, when fear creeps in, uncertainty creeps in, you're really not certain about the future at all. This could all collapse. Faith conquers fear. So there is where that continue, what Nehemiah did so effectively, the continual prayer, continual straight hour prayers, continued dependence, helping to re- people remember this is God's work. God has ordained us. Remember who he is, the great and awesome God. It makes more sense to be afraid of him than it does to be of Sanballat. Sanballat's an enemy of God. I just prayed to God that, that God would take vengeance on in that precatory prayer on the enemies. Do you think God will do that for us? Yes, he will. All right. Remember who he is. Faith conquers fear. It is easy to say that. But as you grow in your walk with the Lord, the more you begin to realize that really is true. Right. Uh, don't you think too, Jim, that you, when we uh, pray in faith, we leave that results uh, to God if, if, in fact, that's what we're doing. If, if we leave it in his hands and don't take it back into our nervous system and get angst and about it, but we just say, whatever it is, God, thy will be done. I, there's a certain amount of peace, I think, that can come from that. Absolutely. Knowing that that prayer has been made in faith, trusting the God that we live for. Well, absolutely. I mean, I have a very, very dear friend of mine who is uh, very, very sick with cancer, and he and I talk about every two or three days. But of late, I've just been because he's it's it's not going well. But I just said to him the other day, Bill, God holds your future in His hand. Is that a true statement? Yes. God holds your future in his hand. And that that that's not a platitude either. That's true. But it also means that future could mean he's going to take me home. That this cancer is going to take my life. But, you know, and it's not just a spin. It's, it's good theology. It means he's going to take you home. That's really what it means. But, I mean, yet at the same, I mean, just, put, just putting all that together, that's hard, though. But the Bible says over and over again to us that God holds our future. Our future is in his hands. Our lives are in his hands. That's a statement of faith. But there's fear that goes with that. There's anxiety that goes with that. But, yes, God holds my future. It's my life is in his hands. My future is in his hands. Because none of you have, you don't have a clue what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You got it all planned out. Your calendar's full. You know exactly what you're going to do in each hour. But God has the absolute right to interrupt that and do whatever he wants. 
And as you know, that's often, you know, when I was in leadership, I always had my calendar laid out what I was going to do. Very few days did my calendar go through exactly what was on each hour. Because, you know, there's always interruptions, there's always things that happen. But it's, it's that my theology tells me my God is great and awesome. So I can trust him. That's exactly what, what Paul taught in his, his prayers when he prayed for people. He never, he never said, oh, you're in a really rough spot here. He always said, look to God, and God will handle it. Yeah. He, he never, he never you know, lowered himself to say, oh, you're in a really, really tough spot. Like he said to your friend, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you're so sad. It was that God has your future in his hand. That, that's... That's where the vision, the focus has to be. Yeah. And his perfect will will be affected in my life. And I trust him with that. Mm-hmm. I, we have to, we, as believers, we have to be able to say, and it's easy to talk about it. It's difficult to live it. Well, I looked at my watch. It's time for us to quit, I think. We got exactly where I wanted to be. So this is a great, great place to end. Nehemiah again. What's he doing to his people? He's encouraging them with strategic, tactical actions, setting up guards, but also reminding them God is great and awesome. Fear is neutralized by faith in him. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for a good year together. Thank you for the generosity and and goodness of these dear guys and sharing this Christmas gift with me and my wife. We're so very grateful for that. Um, I I didn't expect anything like this. It's just incredible, their generosity and magnanimous care for us, and we're so thankful for each one of them. We thank you for these tremendous passages of Scripture that we're studying on Nehemiah. What a great leader he was. He knew exactly what to say, exactly how to pray, exactly how to encourage, exactly how to motivate, and I just thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture. Thank you that we can learn much from that as dads, as husbands, as bosses, as leaders. Uh, These kinds of strategies, kinds of tactics are important for us. To be men of prayer, to be men of faith, that helps to neutralize fear and helps to neutralize the concerns and anxieties that are real in just doing life. But you are a great God. You're an awesome God. And we know you have our futures, you have our lives, you have everything in your hands, and we trust you with that. So we thank you that next Wednesday we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior. The shepherds on that that night, they recognized after the angels declared to them, this is the Messiah. The Magi from the east traveled 800 miles, 40-day journey to see this child. And all their astrology and all the things that they were pointed to what Daniel had told them centuries earlier. Look for the star. That's the sign of the king of the Jews being born. And they would come and worship him. For us, 2019, we bow, so to speak, at the manger next Wednesday. And we just remember who that baby is. That baby in the manger is the savior of the world the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God-man, coming for the express purpose to die for our sins and be resurrected in power and glory. We worship you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us. And the incarnation, Christmas, is just a remembrance 
you began to complete the plan of redemption, which was centered on Jesus, your son. And we give you praise and thanks for that. May we have a special day next Wednesday with our family, our friends. May it be a day of fellowship and fun and joy, but always remembering that we are celebrating the birthday of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.